everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, Volume 8, Issue 371. We're talking about Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge. We talked about the original secret of Monkey Island some time ago. Seek it out on our website or your media option of choice or choice of option. You can play along with our upcoming podcasts. In the next show, we'll be talking about Paradroid and its various uh, spin-offs, including the sort of reboot-come-sequel-Paradroid 90. After that, we continue our Final Fantasy series with number X, 10. Then it's Fury. That's Fury with an I. If you don't know it, seek it out. Following that, we're going to talk about the original Donkey Kong coin-op and also the Game Boy iteration Donkey Kong 94, as it's sometimes known. And after that, we're going to look at a little side project of Capcom's from 20 years ago or so. That's the Dino Crisis. Canerince.com is the place to go to seek out the schedule for the entire rest of the year, as well as links to all our other bits and bobs, our merch store and forum and so on and so forth. You can get every show, every podcast, a week earlier than non-subscribers by supporting us, by helping us out. In return, you get that week early show, sometimes extended. All you need to do is pay a dollar, a single dollar, currently around 79p, 0.9 euros a month. Amazing value. You even get an exclusive monthly podcast on top of that. And our format specials three months early. Currently, the Xbox show is exclusive to subscribers. And soon, we'll be recording our Amiga show. Patreon.com slash Rinse is the place to go. And it really is appreciated. We also have a PayPal button logo on the homepage at Canerinse.com if you just want to throw money our way with nothing in return other than love. Sound of Play comes out on Wednesdays. That's one of our other podcasts. Uh, listeners will have enjoyed our 200th Sound of Play recently, which is a bit of a special show. We're going to give that to all you Cana Rinse subscribers as well, give you a sample. Subscribe to that one also on Thursdays. Also on Thursdays, Playwright with Ryan and Ryan, creating new game ideas, new ways to play. And Fridays, Chris O'Regan talks to developers, the people who make the games we play, and sometimes even review The Sausage Factory Subscribe, review and rate this show and all of the above uh, on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever else you get your shows and follow us on social media as well to keep up with all the things we're doing, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Now joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 371 are Carl Moon. Oh, hi. Thomas Quilfelt. I never touch other people's stools. And Dan Clark, welcome back. Pirate joke. Yay. <laughs> so, is that it? You, it's like been a, a year since you've been on or something and, that, and you come back with that. Well, uh, there's going to be plenty of piratey stuff throughout, isn't there? So I thought I'm people sure there insert is. their own one at the start. It's lovely to have you back for Thank you. 2019. So yes, Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge, is a pirate-themed comedy point-and-click graphic adventure. It is possible, given that the last releases were around getting on for 10 years ago. Some people, some of our younger listeners, may not be familiar. Uh, the Baboon Baron from the forum is the first person we're going to hear from today to give you a little background. Talking about Monkey Island 2 conjures up some wonderful childhood memories. Me and my best friend huddled around his dad's work computer, giggling at the jokes, wondering at the puzzles and downing an impressive volume of Ribena, not Grog. We adored it. And speaking of it now, over 25 years later, I can only recall positive, warm, fuzzy feelings about Monkey Island 2. The setting of pirates and voodoo appealed no end particularly to a swashbuckling young lad such as I was. The graphics and sound impressed me then as they do now, tapping into that magical space between unpleasant body horror and cartoonish silliness. Looking back on it now, the story and characters were ahead of its time. 
Guybrush and Elaine are particularly well-rounded and interesting. The story joyfully plots a meandering course through treasure hunting, map finding, cursed ghost remains, and an amusement park. Sure, like most, I still don't really get the ending, but in a way it's fitting that it's so strange. The influence Monkey Island as a series has had on me can't be under understated. A sense of silliness, adventure, sardonic humour and rubber chickens with pulleys in the middle are all present and correct, thanks to Monkey Island. My alarm every morning is the Monkey Island theme, a song I will never get tired of, and each morning it makes me smile. That's nice. I should issue a spoiler warning up front. We've already mentioned the ending without giving anything away. If you do want to go and play Monkey Island 2, you can do it. You can play it on Steam or uh, Xbox One backwards compatibility or on Xbox 360. Uh, the iOS version is still out there possibly nope. as well. No, nope. they pulled them. They pulled, they do that. Uh, you can't even download it if you bought it either. Um, yeah. It's one of the few that um, <sighs> yeah doesn't even appear in your uh, download list. What's that all about uh, anyway? So yeah, LucasArts made this. Uh, the development on Monkey Island 2 began a month after The Secret of Monkey Island went to manufacturing. Uh, so they started it before that, uh, before they'd established how well that game was going to do, critically and commercially, I suppose. Uh, LucasArts published it. I think it was distributed by US Gold over here. I think they had some kind of relationship at that point uh, with LucasArts. Uh, designed by, uh, directed and designed by Ron Gilbert, with, uh, aided and abetted with the programming and the puzzles and the writing by Dave Grossman and Tim Schafer, of course. Who we've both of whom we've heard a lot from in in recent years, uh, the art and we will talk a lot about the art I'm sure, but uh, particularly Peter Chan, Steve Purcell uh, were responsible for a lot of the background art, especially, but also Larry Ahern and James Alexander Dollar. Music we'll also talk about several composers involved, but Michael Land, uh, supported by Peter McConnell and Clint Bajakian, also Robin Goldstein and Jay White. The engine was the a continuation of the Scum engine. Uh, I've, do you know, I've temporarily, I know that the M, M is Maniac Mansion. It's something, something. What, what does scum stand for? I've gone blank. Script creation utility for Maniac Mansion. That's, thank you. Script utility creation for Maniac Mansion. Uh, although it's a slightly revised um, version uh, with uh, streamlined tools and whatever else. Came out for the MS-DOS PC in December 1991. Also came for the rather mysterious FM Towns uh, machine. There was a Mac OS version as well. And of course, probably familiar most to most of us UK players, because uh, PC gaming PCs were rather expensive at this point, and a lot of us only had Amigas. The Amiga version came out in 1992. On 11 floppy disks, it was missing the iMuse uh, subtleties of the music which we'll talk about missing quite a lot of the sound effects as well and parallax layers in the in the art and quite a few of the colors of the vga version however a lot of us had fond memories even with the disc swapping alex 79 uk from the forum says monkey island 2 is a really special game to me i first played it on the amiga borrowed from a friend disc swapping galore from the first time i played it i was in love it looked gorgeous it was funny to 13 year old me and everyone wants to be a pirate, right? I next played it with an old girlfriend and we would sit up till all hours trying to finish the game because I'd forgotten all the puzzles. Really happy memories of this. It's genuinely a time I look back on and realise I was so happy and content. But enough of that. <laughs> More recently, I played through the special edition on iOS and I still loved it. I really like the music in the game. I love the visual style and the characters, the atmosphere. 
Each little area is so unique and distinct from, an, from the other, and there's little else in gaming for me more iconic than that title screen as the music kicks in. I just love the game from start to finish. It really is an all-timer. So says Alex. The special edition arrived quite some time later in 2010, fairly hot on the heels of the special edition of the previous game, like six months between them or something like that. Uh, that arrived on PC 360, PS3 and the iOS version, which was retired, as we heard, in 2015. Uh, added a commentary track from the developers, a revised interface. You can use more direct control if you want. Uh, there's a simple single button toggle to switch between the original graphics and newly repainted HD graphics. They re-recorded the music with a real band, real instruments. And it says, well, the return of the original voice cast, but it's actually the voice cast from Curse of Monkey Island adopted uh, pretty much wholesale to, to do this, which was pretty cool given that Curse of Monkey Island was 1997 and they got, the, they got the, pretty much the lot back together for 2010. Unlockable concept art, of course. But sadly, very sadly, the opening sequence of Dancing Monkeys and credits was removed. Oh, I don't know. Controversial. I mean, they do appear when you boot the game up, but yeah, I was never happy about that. Anyway, that came out. Uh, if you have an Xbox 360 or Xbox One, uh, it was part of the February 2017 Games with Gold lineup, part of the backwards compatibility program. Very nice, too. Deadpool Negative says, while I was a huge fan of Maniac Mansion and Day of the Tentacle, I only came to the Monkey Island series when the special editions made it to Xbox 360. I found The Secret of Monkey Island to be very entertaining and funny, and it put a big goofy grin on my face. The Chuck's Revenge, by contrast, is a far more challenging, coarser and darker experience. Though that doesn't mean it's not a good game, it's just that the puzzles are crazier and more obscure than ever. Guybrush Threepwood also comes off as more of a self-absorbed jerk. Elaine can't stand him, and many solutions have him screwing over NPCs with glee. Heck, did he straight up murder poor Stan just to get a key? Alleviating this is Dominic Armato's always amiable performance, but if you go into classic mode, Guy Brush is kind of a sociopath. The puzzles are so strange and out there that I often found myself hammering the button for hints, but when they came together I couldn't help but admire some of the imagination on display, frustrating and fun in equal measure. In fact, I'm wondering if, in a way, that's part of the point. Monkey Island 2 feels like Gilbert is struggling with the storytelling constraints of Guybrush's world and the need to continually one-up the puzzles and solutions to the point where the game's controversial ending feels like an attempt to completely blow it apart. Yes, that ending. I must say, I enjoyed it. I'm not sure it's properly set up, just hints here and there throughout the narrative, but again, I think Ron Gilbert was trying to do more with the world of Monkey Island than make it a delivery system for weird jokes, and for that he should be commended even if we'll likely never know how he planned to resolve it. When the game came out, uh, it reviewed pretty well, as I recall, lots of uh, sort of 90% and thereabouts from the PC press at the time. The special editions also went down a treat uh, with um, yeah, sort of 85 to 88% across the different formats. And the sales, uh, there are no official figures for either version, um, but according to Wikipedia, the game was a critical, critical success but a commercial failure. Hmm. Tim Schafer reckons 25,000 copies, is that right? Does he? Wow. I think so, but by 2009. But I think this might be ignoring huh. sort of, um, like double packs and uh, LucasArts compilations that featured it. So there I think was. some people might have picked up on it later. Maybe those don't count as the um, official sales figures. 
That's really interesting. Well, that is a very small amount of copies. Um, it, yeah. It can't even, be right, can it? No, it, it could be. Not with I mean, the, don't not forget. With the reputation and a few decades behind it. Even if people obtain it through other uh, means, you know, don't necessarily pay. For oh well, more people. Yeah, of course, more people have played it than twenty-five thousand. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe uh, the original big box. He could yes. be correct. I, the original I, floppy big box edition. Yes, and he probably. Yeah, I mean that would probably he would only be aware of PC sales. It'd be interesting to know how many the Amiga versions sold in Europe, for instance. Probably another few thousand, um, but it was expensive, and the the disc swapping was prohibitive. Uh, of course, there was yeah, there was the Monkey Island Bounty Pack. Uh, which was in the came out in the mid mid late nineties, I think, or early two thousands even, which compiled the first uh, three games, I believe. There was one so, with a, called Monkey Madness that had the first two and a demo of the third as well. Oh, good knowledge, right? So yeah, hmm. but of course, piracy was rife, <laughs> ironically, um, and I imagine that a lot more people played it. And obviously, since two thousand and nine, we've had all those special editions and whatever. But it does rather. Um, even as legendary as elements of this game are, particularly the ending, that does rather speak to the fact, although we've had quite a lot of long-form correspondence, we didn't have that many three-word reviews. So maybe mm. not as many people have played it as we th thought, but maybe those people who did play it have strong memories. I mean, the piracy at the time was a really strange one because <clears throat> I had a legitimate copy mm. back on the Amiga, um, one of the big box releases. It was fantastic. came with mm. the uh, the... The, the spinner security the tool voodoo, to get voodoo in. Wheel. Yeah, wheel and voodoo, um, yeah. the amount of people I knew that didn't get that sheet of paper with them with all the supposed combinations that actually asked me what the code was was actually quite phenomenal. So, yeah, yeah you had to get a cracked version. Yeah. Yeah, that, that basically you could enter any anything and it would uh, it would sort it out for you. Um, yeah, any other memories of, of getting that Amiga version? I'm going to assume... Given uh, your age and stuff, that that was a a, a father procured title. It was about <laughs> it was about thirty eight quid at that point. So yeah, it was um, definitely a bit of a splurge. It was because obviously my my father got me my Amiga when I was about four or five years old, um, and we'd played through the original Monkey Island uh, as one of the adventures together, and we we were really keen on like point and clickers like Legend of Carandia and stuff. So when Monkey Island Two: The Chuck's Revenge came out, we well, I was excited as it was. I mean, it, being an adult now, I know my dad must have found it e even harder to wait. Um, went and bought that. And there was actually, I remember, a neighbour down the street. Um, I used to be good friends with her son. Um, he's moved away now, but they they used to live down there. And she'd actually got an Amiga and had got into playing this. And this was the game that she'd actually picked up. Um, and the amount of times, my parents never, they, my parents and his parents never spoke to each other at all it just well it wasn't that kind of uh, relationship on the street except for to find out if one or the other had completed a puzzle yet in monkey island too right. and it was kind of get go out the front door walk down the street knock on the door inquire about a puzzle and come back and it's one of my strangest childhood memories of playing games in the street and it was it was to try and solve some solutions because as we all know some solutions are a little bit crazy in the point and click games of that era um yeah, that that is my strongest uh, memory of the whole thing to do with Monkey Island Two: The Chuck's Revenge, and it still makes me smile. Um, but yeah, it's obviously I was on the Amiga. Um, never played the PC version, so I had to deal with twice the floppies. Uh, thankfully, never fell for the uh, insert disc twenty two uh, prank that was in the game. So that that's one of my memories when I saw it in magazines. People writing into like Amiga Power and stuff. 
because yeah. it was cheaper than right uh, ringing a helpline uh, about what do I do about this disc? I have bought a legit coffee, honest. Um, yeah, just just daft little jokes are, are the things that I remembered the most about it and actually going back and revisiting back on the Xbox 360. Um, it was amazing how many of the little comedy jokes like had come back that I remembered and, and were still making me smile. So, um, yeah, my, my time with Monkey Island 2 was very, very um, separated, probably by about six, 15 years, 16 years. Um, sure. So, so, yeah, it was kind of when I got to revisit on the 360, it was like revisiting something for the first time with slightly familiar jokes. Nice. Dan, what are your memories of Monkey Island 2? Were you already uh, invested in Guybrush and co? Uh, no. Well, other than reading about it in magazines, I'd always been interested in the uh, the first two games. And then the first one had uh, released on Mega CD, which I, I didn't actually have at the time. But I'd always sort of read the reviews and it was kind of on my list that if I ever got one, that would be one of the games. But it never got yeah. a European release anyway. But um, I think it must have been 93 when I first played Monkey Island 2. Mm. Um it, uh, similar to the Baboon Baron, where it was on a, a friend's mum's work computer. She was an accountant, and uh, so had to have quite a good PC for uh, for the software she needed. And um, I think it came with like a just a, a handful of, well, a stack full of uh, the boxed games. And we'd seen uh, Day of the Tentacle in a shop, and I'd said, oh my God, that looks amazing. Uh, so it must have been 93. And he said, well, my mum's got a game by those people. And so we, yeah, we started playing it then. It was the floppy disc version, so no talking or anything. Yeah, and the only point and click on game game I played by that point was um, Dracula the Undead on the Lynx, which um, nice. is it's not really remembered as one of the uh, all time great point and click games. Um, so yeah, I'd never quite seen anything like it. I'd read the reviews. I kind of knew how they played from reading up on it uh, from things like Cosmic Osmo on the Mac, where um, right. I remember Ace Magazine talked about how it had uh, they called them hyperlinks, which uh, obviously came to have a different <laughs> meaning. But, yeah, um, yeah. But it was, but the hypercard, I think, was the uh, software. But I'm getting off into a tangent. But um, Delicious I didn't play it myself until <laughs> a, a good few years later when that double pack, I think it was Monkey Madness or Monkey Special in the rest of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the CD-ROM version with the talking. So then I felt like, ah, uh, right. well, I had this sort of real souped up version compared to uh, the one that I played with a friend. And we'd never got to the end uh, as, as the two of us playing it. So... So again, I didn't even know the ending until yeah, maybe three or four years after that. So yeah, it was a, it was a real well, a, a treat and a surprise to to get that. A shock, Thomas. How's about yourself? I don't have uh, much fond nostalgic love for this game or even this series or really this genre from an early '90s point of view. I I vaguely remember. I have a sort of snapshot memory of like being seven or eight. And playing a little bit of a Monkey Island game on someone else's PC and hating it for just being ridiculously hard or completely impassable. Um, and then not playing Monkey Island games for years and years. Loving uh, Grim Fandango. Um, really enjoying uh, Telltale's Sam and Max series with my wife. And, uh, and then recently playing uh, uh, Day of the Tentacle. But I actually played... Um, monkey island uh, special edition one on iphone in 2012 which was a bit of a mistake because it's tiny screen and i mm. managed to break the game at the end something about bananas which which really annoyed me uh and uh i i went straight onto monkey to an ipad um and felt similarly frustrated um 
uh, um, I think my wife kind of carried us over the finish line because she was more interested in seeing all the jokes and the characters and seeing the ending. Right. And then just in the last few weeks, I've um, I've played it on Steam, uh, but I've had to steal time on my wife's PC. So I've been rushing a bit through it. I did beat it, but I, I think I used way too many hints. I think I spoiled it for myself a little bit. So yeah, right. so I'm really, I don't okay. have that nostalgic love for it. And, um, it's actually you're you're sort of our control in this uh, yeah, nostalgic I mean, experiment. Yeah, yeah, I can yeah. be Joe Normal in this scenario and uh, definitely have my frustrations with it. Sure, and you've played the game in the same way as a lot of us have played games for the first time. A lot of the older games that we've covered for the show, you know, not perhaps play, playing it as purely and as innocently as we'd like. So uh, it gives us that interesting, different perspective. I'm I'm perfectly happy with that. Uh, me, I do go back all the way. Uh, I bought monkey island when it was brand new for my amiga didn't have a pc for many years to come um but uh whenever amiga game uh, pc games were ported to the amiga and they weren't completely you know uh beyond the pale in terms of their port being uh just too much of a downgrade i would happily buy them and certainly uh, the lucasarts ports up until around this point were were pretty decent this was really where you could see the the tide was starting to turn and you know that many floppy disks was unwieldy uh, also the price i think um it was already quite normal for big box games at this point uh, to be sort of 35 pounds whereas uh, previously they'd been you know closer to 25 certainly if you if uh, if you got a multi disk game with a nice manual and some things in the box it wasn't unusual but this was even more than that i think it was just i think it was 92 the vat went up and a lot of retailers put their prices up and and distributors as well so I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure this game was 37.99 if my memory serves. And as a uh, I was 20 years old, living at home, or 19 years old, and uh, that was a, slightly too far to go. So I think my mum got me for this for my birthday. Um, so I was hugely excited to play it. Uh, I knew it was going to be a problem. I had one external disk drive for my Amiga 500, so I I, I at least. <laughs> slightly reduced the amount of disk swapping by not having only the one internal drive but really you wanted to play it from floppy if you didn't if you weren't lucky enough or rich enough to have a hard drive for your amiga you really wanted um sort of four disk drives chained and even then you'd still be doing a lot of swapping so uh yeah it was unwieldy but i did get through it also ran very slowly uh, the amiga 500's processor was was nowhere near as fast as uh, the PCs of the time that, that they were making these games on. So scenes like, particularly, I remember uh, the, the the mayor of Fat Island, the scene where he's having the the food squirted into his face. Like the there was enormous lag, input lag on that screen and stuff like that. So um, if you think that's preserve of like fast Twitch games, no, you can have a point and click adventure if your PC's running slow enough with input lag. Uh, so yeah, even just transitioning from screen to screen was potentially nightmarish and the whole middle section of the game they very deliberately you'll hear this in the developers commentary they very deliberately put uh, items across all the islands that you could sail between on dread ship and so the disc swapping was interminable uh, however i did i did struggle through and i did complete it on the amiga i think i replayed it later when i got an a1200 with a hard drive so i think that made it a uh, considerably smoother experience and then Obviously, I replayed it again when the special edition came out and I've just rattled through it again. I say rattled through it. I did actually spend seven hours on it. My 
Mm. My th- my thing was I, w- I was going to um, go for the one achievement I don't have on the Xbox 360 version, which is the speedrun version, which is to complete it in under three hours. But two things. One, I'd forgotten all the puzzles again because <laughs> it's nearly 10 years ago. Not all of them, but most of them. And and two, uh, doing a speedrun for a game like this isn't really compatible with preparing for a podcast to talk about the humor and the writing. So yeah. uh so I sucked it up. Service, really, don't you? Yeah. So I did use some hints to remind me of things. I was like, "How did I ever solve that?" Uh, but <laughs> but apparently I did back in the day. Truthful Cake from the forum, a new contributor, I believe, says, uh, "Although I wasn't alive during the golden era of point-and-click adventures, I still have always considered one of them my favourite genres. Ever since playing Scooby-Doo classic creep capers on the Game Boy Color <laughs> as a child, how's that for an obscure one? Has he one upped Dan's?" Uh, Whatever vampire game. <laughs> Dracula you, the Undead. Dracula yeah. the Undead on the links. It's a close call. I think you win still there. Uh, Truthful Kate continues, among the several genre classics I've played over the years, the Monkey Island games remain at the very top of my list. I'll never forget the first time I played the first game in a series. It had everything I could possibly want from an adventure game. Toe-tapping music, beautiful pixel art, interesting characters, and most importantly, an unforgettable sense of humour. To this day, very few games have made me laugh out loud more than this gem. So when I finally got around to playing the sequel, I was initially sceptical. How could Monkey Island 2 possibly outdo the first game when it had been so perfect? I was thoroughly anticipating being disappointed. But oh, how wrong I was. The music was better, the jokes were funnier, and the story had surprisingly more suspense and intrigue. Sure, the puzzles rely on ridiculous leaps in logic, but that's just how these games have always been. Besides, it makes up for it in the writing department. I will never forget calling the hint line in the jungle, the trippy skeleton dance scene, or, above all, the baffling twist ending. What did that ending even mean? We may never know, but it doesn't matter. Monkey Island 2 is point-and-click adventure perfection, and now I want to play it again. Thanks, truthful cake. Yeah, one more mention for that copy protection. Uh, You can actually go to... uh, www.oldgames.sk slash codewheel slash monkey island to mix and mojo and you can play with the code wheel in virtual form there uh, which is very nice i assume that's also so you can if you've downloaded a hooky rom you can beat the copy protection um but there it is it's scanned in and uh, yes yeah, typically nice piece of art of course sometimes you'd get those code wheels i don't know if any of you had this i think my my um, dialer pirate from the first game was slightly misaligned so it was uh, it was always hard to get it looking, get those pirates looking just right and get the right answer. But definitely we were talking um, recently about some of the other less creative. Uh, there was there was a real mixture between really uncreative copy protection and really creative. So you get yeah. on on the expensive creative side, you get things like the, the dongle for Robocop 3 and the lens lock for fighter pilot and, and various other games. But on the other end, you just get brown sheets of paper with lists of numbers on that you had to type in and you couldn't photocopy. But in here, this was the middle ground. This was something that was you know, sensible. It was made out of cardboard and a brass fastener and a bit of art. But, it, you know, typical LucasArts, it sort of fed into the theme of the game. So even from the start, even doing the, the admin at the start of the game, you're kind of getting the, the vibe, right? Yeah, it's like a prop. Yes. We should. I, I actually want to mention the box art in this case. Steve Purcell's box art uh, was mm. just just stunning. Like It's it, beautiful. Just really like this. I mean, I wish game box art looked like this now. It's just so good. It actually uh, tells a story to look at it. It is like the, the piece of artwork that you kind of get a tone for 
um, the, the feeling that the game's going to sell you from that artwork. And in the same way as people fetishize uh, vinyl album art because it's, yeah. it's across a bigger uh, area, it's true. These big box Amiga games, although there was or, or PC games, although there was no real point to the to the size of these boxes, you could fit 30, even eleven or thirteen discs. You could fit into a smaller box, but having that big box meant that you've got this big package of yeah, with a massive great piece of art on the front of it. And you could hear the rattle and the thud of stuff <laughs> moving so, inside yeah. the box. But yeah, in terms of the Monkey Island artwork, it's one of the few pieces of uh, gaming artwork I would ever have blown up for a big size print on a wall. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I absolutely love I love the artwork in general across all of Monkey Island, but uh, the Monkey Island 2 one uh, specifically, I absolutely adore. It's funny you say that about the artwork and vinyl, because at this point, early 90s, CDs aren't still widespread. Mm-mm. And so people are used to with physical formats, you know, vinyl, you have to change side every 20 minutes. So so changing disc, changing side on a vinyl, people still in that kind of mindset of, of sure. not expecting everything on one disc or in one sitting yeah. Mm. yeah it's true actually i mean games were spreading out obviously disc floppy discs have been invented quite some time before we changed from the five and uh five and a quarters was Quarter, it to the yeah. three and a halfs or whatever um which weren't floppy they, <laughs> well they were floppy the on the inside a, the, Oh, the five and a quarters were quite floppy, and then the little, yes. the little blue ones weren't weren't at all. No, floppy on the inside, uh, in a protective shell. Yes, um, but yeah, uh, and obviously, yeah, they had higher capacity, and then they they made them double capacity and whatever else. But but yes, true enough, things were spreading across, um, yeah, increasing numbers of discs, and it was obvious that the the, the CD revolution had to come. On the yeah. way up to that, we had the uh, the multi load tapes from the generation yeah, before too. Yeah, very much so. Clipper from the forum says, My overriding memories of Monkey Island 2 are some of the obtuse puzzles, the sneaking suspicion that disc 4 contained nothing more than a text file with <laughs> insert disc 5 written in it. The disc drive would spit that thing out almost as soon as you put it in, and that big flimsy cardboard copy protection wheel. The setting of the story, obviously we talked a lot about the origins of the secret Monkey Island in the previous podcast, so check that one out. But uh, as a refresher, according to Ron Gilbert, the Monkey Island series was partially inspired by the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disney. Monkey Island 2 features a number of tributes to that, particularly a scene with a guard dog in a prison being lured by a bone and Disneyland-style underground tunnels and e-tickets in the closing scenes. An even greater influence, however, was the 1988 book On Stranger Tides by Tim Powers. And of course, the Pirates of the Caribbean movie would go on. There would be a sequel called On Stranger Tides. So it all kind of came together. Uh, so obviously a lot of what uh, Monkey Island's fun and our affection for it hangs on uh, the cast of characters, the script, and in the spoken word versions of performances, certainly. Um, Guybrush, Elaine, obviously we know LeChuck is the big bad, supported by Largo Legrand, and Guybrush has, I hate, yeah, hesitate to call them friends, but we've got Dread and the voodoo lady and Wally the map maker and um, Captain Kate Capsize. Uh, I suppose the question I wanted to ask, as well as asking you, you know, if you if you have if you do have affection for these characters, and I suppose this is a good one to ask Thomas as well to see if, because obviously for these for us they, these are particularly for the younger ones among us these are these are figures from our childhood, mm. um, but also uh, obviously humour is one of the most subjective things as subjective as anything else, and um, it was kind of the the humour was very much kind of. I think it was, you know, it was, it was kind of corny even then, 
So for me, that means that it I don't think it has really dated, but it was I think there is a brand there. There are maybe some gags which do feel like they're of a time. Yeah. And I do wonder how well it would land to a with a younger person playing now. I personally still find it amusing. But Thomas. Well, I think it, we kind of live in a post ironic retro infused world now. So so in the world of today's Internet and Twitter and everything, everything's funny and nothing's funny i think the humor's dated really well to be honest although okay. i'm a massive terry pratchett fan and i've read all his right. books so yes. i guess i'm primed very much for this kind of and of course his uh his stuff got its own point and click adventures yes. with a similar brand of humor right. yeah yeah so i think the voice acting in the special editions really really helps this there's there's two very mm. funny things in it for me that sort of really stand out one is almost the first conversation you have choices in with the woodcutter and you can do the wood with the woodcutter woodchuck wood and you yeah. just keep going down that dialogue rabbit hole and mm. pretty quickly you realize hang on a minute they really did go all the way with this these dialogue options and so that's really really yeah. funny gag it's completely pointless it's and it, it really sets up the tone for the rest of the game and, and when it's voiced they really go for it the performances are brilliant and then the second one straight almost straight away afterwards when wally you take Wally's monocle and mm. he's just like, oh, please help me, please. And you just, if when it's voiced, you feel absolutely terrible for him, but it's also completely hilarious. Dan, any, uh, do, you, do you have a fondness and affection for these characters and this kind of, this sort of brand of um, goofy humour? Yeah, I think it's from a time where maybe towards the end of the 80s and the early 90s, there was kind of a, a kind of nerds becoming cool thing. Maybe the first time of that, like moving on from, your earlier 70s and 80s stereotypes, your kind of porkies uh, and revenge of the nerds type thing to where uh, nerds were saying, no, actually, we are quite funny and uh, and sharp and, and witty. Again, Terry Pratchett's another sort of perfect example of it. Um, I think it's, uh, so I think it's kind of, for me, uh, again, of a time, but I don't think it's necessarily dated massively. Again, I, it's difficult to say. <laughs> um, I can't see it through the eyes of, yeah. of someone nowadays and as you say there are some things that maybe are uh off color in in today's world a but, little um, yeah there, there's a not few in any, moments uh, where you go mm, but yeah it's none of it's i don't think any of it's sort of malicious or anything like that. it's also uh just around the time of uh the simpsons had just recently uh yeah come out gone, in the States gone as massive, well. yeah. so um i think that style of and maybe like bill and ted's wayne's world that kind of thing i think there's a mm. a sort of type of humor from so, that time so very american very american in in fact yeah, which is interesting because sure. terry pratchett very kind of yes. english in a way and we're all english obviously but this this that all the the humor touch points you've just mentioned are all american which is interesting hmm. well I, I grew up uh adoring the marx brothers still do and uh and also uh early steve martin uh movies mm. you know late 70s early 80s stuff and i think there was a lot of crossover with that also a huge fan of the jim henson era muppets and i think there's a lot of that sort of warmth and gentleness to mm. it what i will say is i do think this game there's a few few of our contributors have sort of alluded to this the second game is considerably darker than the first it reminds me of the com comparisons between the first oh, another lucas arts thing the first raiders and Temple of Doom, where Temple of Doom is kind of mean and nasty and actually quite racist. This one is, doesn't go down that path so much. But um, there's a real t shift in tone. And certainly Guybrush in the first game 
was a more relatable, likable character. Whereas in this game, it's kind of gone to his head a bit. The fact that he starts the game with all this treasure. And even though Largo Legrand immediately shakes it all out of him, he's kind of, he is kind of a jerk throughout the entire game. But he, he set up for a fault, you know, almost the opening shot is him hanging off this rope in, yeah. a, in a lot of trouble. Um, so I think they, I really like that, actually. It feels like there's an arc. So he's not just this sort of, you know, vanilla, naive, wannabe pirate. He's a sort of, yeah, that, he's got that swagger, that completely undeserved swagger and just keeps getting into more and more trouble as the game goes on. So I, I think that there's a nice journey sure. for that. And you, you say it's darker, but there's yeah. a point where he digs up something from a a um graveyard and his trousers fall down so yes they do undercut <laughs> every attempt at being serious they undercut themselves repeatedly yeah i think just the fact that it went from ghosts to zombies means that there's a lot more sort of body you know horror comedy horror in inverted commas whatever but uh there's a there's there's a bit more kind of icky goo- goopy stuff in this game which de- you know definitely has its appeal certainly to kids i actually wonder if you know, Carl, you were probably the the youngest of us playing this for the first time. Yeah. I, I reckon some of the puns and references probably. I know you're a smart kid, Carl, but <laughs> some of the some of the sort of references to things may have you know just gone over your head. But some of the some of the gags may have landed really well. I don't know. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of relatable humour um, being a kid because it does have that childish innocence. It's the same kind of way that I didn't necessarily get the in jokes of all the Steve Martin movies, but I still absolutely loved that that style of movie. And it's you know it's a, probably a good example for me would be something like Airplane, which was hilarious as a child yeah, and a more hilarious as an adult mm-hmm. um, because you start to get those references. So there was yeah. definitely enough there to to sort of appreciate. And I think the key with this game compared to maybe the other point and click games of that that genre or that that time is that this was very comfortable in that uh, comedic innocence, that childlike uh, joy. And it's really interesting that you mentioned the Henson's Muppets because it does genuinely remind me of that sort of thing. So um, it never sells itself to be um, darker or more uh, adult-oriented than it ever needs to be. There's always enough in there that will just make you smile. And I think that that is one of the things that really allows the comedy to hold hold up even this far after release. Um, mm. You know, the a perfect example Tom mentioned earlier was the uh, woodchuck gag, mm. which, I mean, that was, it, it was hilarious at the time. I probably appreciate it more because we see something like that so rare in a game that a dialogue tree will go that deep to keep a joke going. Um, and it, it's so obscure and, and bizarre to actually see. But again, just brilliant, brilliant writing. And for me, that's why it holds up better than the likes of um, Grim Fandango, Day of the Tentacle, Sam and Max, etc. Um, for me, yeah, I, I find this at least as funny as I did the first time I played it. Now, I, I played it at the age of seven, mm. eight. I'll have been eight years old. Yeah, definitely um, the perfect age this. for some of the jokes. Maybe not some of the. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, the, I think the key is that there's that many jokes yeah. that often that if one doesn't land, another one will within five minutes. And five yeah. minutes is really quick for a joke to land in a point and click. And the mm. the character arc of Guybrush, um, he's definitely a different character in the second. He allows jokes to to um 
he's a part of the jokes in the second game, whereas the jokes sort of play off him in the first game. And there was that interesting discussion where uh, you hear the story of George Lucas going into um, Lucas uh, film games or Lucas Arts, as this was the first Lucas Arts game, mm. um, talking uh, with Tim Schafer um, and basically saying that. Uh, he really liked the game, but maybe the one thing is that uh, the the supporting cast stands out over Guybrush, and Guybrush isn't bold enough. Oh, right. um, he needs to be funnier hmm. um, to at least not get sort of lost. He needs a, a key feature. George Lucas him, has so. such a flawless record of humour uh, in films. So. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, thank, thankfully, that was his only uh, <laughs> that was his only prod in terms of uh, in, potentially improving it, and it's something that they did acknowledge that they took on board. Um, and that may be why there was a slightly different arc to the yeah, way that sure. Guybrush interacts with uh, characters in the second game yeah. um, than he does in the first. But he's, ru- he's just I'd rude, probably... you know. You you get these dialogue choices, and Guybrush can straight up insult people to their face. Um, I really enjoy that. I think that stands up really well. Yeah, I think that's that... what he's learned a pirate is like. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, over yeah. his adventure, he's kind of um, playing he's up playing to the part, what he yeah. believes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that uh, allusion that Carl made to the Zucker brothers, or Zucker Abraham Zucker films, makes a lot of sense. Uh, this was around the time that the, uh, I guess the first Naked Gun movie was around this time, and the second. Um, that makes perfect sense. But also, um, yeah, talking about those going down the, you know, endless dialogue trees. Uh, my favourite one, even though it's not. I mean, it's the the, the joke is that it goes on too long, and the names of the colours that he names. But oh, yeah. the bit on the island with Herman Toothrot, where he he's being asked a philosophical question, and rather than work it out early on, he lists all these colours, many of which are, aren't even really shades, but he sort of you know makes makes colours out of things that have a colour. Uh, so you know, smoke. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, um, and. Obviously, when when they came to do the dialogue version of that, uh, Dominic Armato has to yeah sort of list off uh, I don't know like ninety colours or whatever it is in 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 the, the exact same tone of voice for each one and sound just as enthused for each one as well. So yeah, I really like that. That sort of reminded me of the sort of uh, comedy and repetition thing that Andy Kaufman or Stuart Lee or somebody yeah. like that. And that's not a real through. puzzle, is it? No, not really. No, you don't have to just go back. End... There's no right answer. No. And uh, you keep thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to come back here later. I'm going to learn what the colour is. And then I'm going to come back and that will be a dialogue option. It's just a diss at uh, academic philosophy. Yeah, it's just <laughs> they just wanted to. Yeah. That makes it funnier to me because I've, I've only just recalled yeah. that I never went back. No, no. It, it, in the end, it's just like, yep, you've learned enough. <laughs> this is a waste of time. Yeah. Kiss Mammal says uh, regarding the game's humour, while it undoubtedly has a lot of personality and charm and was certainly funnier and more sophisticated than other video games of the time, I do wonder how well it has dated and whether it's one of those things that you really had to be there at the time to appreciate. I can't really imagine that its oddball blend of weird self-referential jokes, non-secretors and curious obsessions with things like root beer and trademark symbols would play well with a modern audience. Even as as an adult, I occasionally still can't quite shake the feeling that I'm missing something or whether I'm in on the joke or not. It's often hard to see these things without the rose-tinted spectacles of nostalgia and comedy is hugely subjective, but I do sometimes find myself wondering whether the humour has dated poorly or if it was really all that funny in the first place. It's definitely I- dated well. And, and what he said makes me think of, we're living in an age of like, um, you get, you know, hip hop and rap songs with lots and lots of very um, uh, sort of 
contemporary jokes and self-referential nods and things like that and shout outs to other people but you've also got genius.com where you can go and pull that all apart so i think that in that context all of those kind of individual jokes they exist better today because you can just look up what the joke is if you really want to so i think uh, monkey island 2 works really well today i think it won't for everyone though that's the point like Mm. it's it is subjective uh i think you'd have a real problem like i've had i've i've attempted to play uh some of the the leisure suit larry remake i had to review that um and it was excruciating i found i gotta say i'm not a terry pratchett fan and i found the Discworld games excruciating even though it's a similar kind of thing it just didn't land with me at all so if you were in terms of recommending this game to somebody you have to bear in mind that if you don't like the humor you're probably not going to enjoy your time with the game because it's it's a huge key part of it um but i think more people feel kindly disposed to it than don't probably but I, yeah I, I think it's it's i think there is a, probably a certain amount of caution to be exercised in terms of you won't necessarily love it like the people who had it growing up will love it there's possibly an argument you made that it's slightly self-indulgent. Maybe those people would yeah. think that. Massively um, like, self-indulgent. <laughs> to me, it's a group of people trying to make each other laugh while making a game. And Definitely. that kind of transfers across. But I can see that other people might find that alienating. But then we get Rick and Morty. You know, you get quick fire gag based shows these days, cartoons. Um, so I think you've got to give people credit these days. Um, I think this humour works really, really well, honestly. Yeah, and I think the difference is when you look at something like uh, a Rick and Morty or uh, Bojack Horseman, anything like that 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 relies on that humour, that's great, but it's linear humour. A game like Monkey Island 2 has to deliver that over and over in different variations, in different locations, and to actually write something that's so funny, um, and as a point and click, is completely dependent on that, because um, while certain things could be sold as a visual gag, it's quite rare. It usually has to be backed up by um essentially the writing yeah and and the fact that it can maintain that through the game it 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 still blows my mind how consistent that humor is through this title because it's as you said leon it took you seven hours to go through it that's yeah that's not a, that, that is not a short period of time to go through a be click game insanely long for a comedy film for example yeah <laughs> you, exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and and I, I think that that is absolutely superb. And of course, it's self-indulgent. Everything that's, <laughs> um, of course, it's written by um, any any writer who writes their own gags is going to be somewhat self-indulgent. But they're all like when everyone's writing it together, it's you know, it, it works. They bounce off each other. They get the humour. And there's a reason why Tim Schafer and Ron Gilbert worked so well as that team. And and Dave Grossman, and, yeah. I, th- I think they're and all Dave Grossman, not, th- not to think, give discredit. I think they were all funnier together than any of them has been without the others. In it. Uh, oh, I don't know. Grim Fandango fans would uh, would disagree there. See, I disagree. I think this is a much funnier title than Grim Fandango, and I was I'm a huge fan of Grim Fandango, but um, I I just think that independently they are funny, uh, and I think together they are just funnier, and it it. That writing really does bring the best out of everyone. Um, you know, yeah. th- there's a reason why we're 30 years down the line with Monkey Island and it's still heralded as the comedy point and click game. The thing is, yeah. they, w- they were all writing their own bits, as you'll hear from the developer commentary, but 
they, they all had peer they had constant peer review mm. so so they and were always key, yeah, yeah as you say basically trying to make each other I laugh mean, I, no i'm not i'm i i i enjoyed the writing in grim fandango too but i and but uh i certainly think yeah compared to some of dave grossman's stuff i don't think he's been better than he's been with those other guys i'd feel confident calling this if not the funniest then one of the funniest games ever made i mean it really is a dream team and i think about i don't know south park you can and, call it that but that's still a completely punk. subjective thing no, no, of course I, I, and of course leon i'd never go the, the whole hog and say it was the funniest it's not about ranking how funny things are it's where did we find it funny yeah you obviously i'm i'm pleased i'm I'm honestly pleased to hear that you did find it funny thomas because uh, you know i thought maybe that that would be one of the barriers to somebody coming to it new now in in this time but there's no point in trying to, you know, we, we, we'd we all have our very much completely separate lists of what's funnier than this and what's funnier than that. Um, but obviously, it's good to know that it can work for a, uh, a, a somebody coming to it new in this time. But as I say, I still don't think that's guaranteed, as, as illustrated by Kiss Mammal here. I think some people would find it quite profoundly unfunny, actually. Sound design. So a lot of people have fondness for the original uh, soundtrack to Monkey Island. I'm sure we talked about it in that podcast. I haven't heard it back for some years, but uh, I know I love the music to that game. The main theme sort of returns, but it's a variant on it. Um, obviously, if you'd bought this for PC back in 1992, your game would have sounded rather different depending on AdLib or Sound Blaster or PC speaker or whatever setup you had. If you play it now, uh, you'll get uh, you can you can as as we said you can segue between the one or two um, options the original style audio from the MIDI files or you can have this re-recorded music. Now, uh, I think this is where probably yeah for me ahead of the art this is where the remake the special edition really shines because I think they did a, a wonderful job. I think it's like a seven or eight piece band um of re-recording all the music and and bringing it to life i have a lot of fond memories of the the original or the, the the conversion of the pc music to amiga um but missing imuse was was the real shame with the amiga version so this was the first title to use uh, michael land and peter mcconnell's imuse audio sequencing midi engine that enabled the compositions of the game to change interactively depending on the current environment or situation its capabilities are extensively explored in the game with progressive music arrangements adapting to the story on screen for most of the game and logical transitions from one piece to another. So, for instance, in Woodtick, the town has its own theme, but every time you go into one of the sub-locations, the different shops on the ship, basically, uh, the music will change instruments and, mm. uh, um, and sort it, of priorities. So, so how that works musically, it, it stays in a G major when you're just walking around the, the boats in, in Woodtick and it, uh-huh. it feels like a, it sounds like a jazz improvisation around that. It sounds like a band just sort of generally playing G major, right? you know, poking in and out with different instruments. And then... If you go into one of the other locations, it drops down into the to the relative minor and plays a melody. But depending on which character it is, it will play it on a different instrument in a slightly different way. And then it will flow back into the G major, sort of noodling around in wood tick. And I, I think they say in one of the audio, the commentary tracks, that that was the most complicated they ever went with iMuse. Like yes. They absolutely blew their load in that yep. opening section and then thought oh god yeah. this is complicated let's never do anything yep. as ambitious as this again 
Um, yes. But but who knows? Maybe psychologically it helped soften the blow of people who just spend many, many, many hours going back and forth, back and forth uh, in Woodtick. And it was a, a huge innovation in the sense that, you know, most games do this now uh, in, in some way or other, whether it's subtly or, or overtly. And this no, was they, pretty I, much... I wouldn't say most games, Leon. I'd say this kind mm. of inter- interactivity is still incredibly ambitious even now. Okay. Most big budget games, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, even then. Even then. Because this mm. is actually pulling apart the composition and, and weaving it together. And sure, yeah. it is very impressive for the time. I'll revise that. A number of yeah. games. <laughs> yeah. I, I think one of the things that, that surprises me most about it um, is how well it times with the pacing of the animation which is a little bit strange for a, the a animation game wait, anyway because yeah the animation waits yes. for the music cue to cue in so yeah the, the fact that it can align everything like that is it's absolutely wonderful and uh, if i remember correctly when the three, xbox 360 release released it didn't actually work there was something wrong in the code where the imuse effects weren't actually in the 360 release uh, when it came out, which is mm. such a shame. Oh, right. Um, uh, but actually, when you see it uh, and interact with it, um, it's and it's not something I appreciated at the time, obviously. Um, but going back now, it's something that you genuinely just can't miss. Um, because so- it, it it's it's so rare. Like you say, it's rare in games now, let alone something that's that's as old as this is, and it really yeah. does add to the atmosphere that the game sells. A really good example is in the swamp where he's standing on the bank, it's fewer instruments. When he gets in the coffin, it adds a few more yeah. percussion. As he gets mm. towards the mouth, um, it builds up, and then the animation for the mouth to move up will wait until the right point in the, That's in right. the bar yeah. music, please. Yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, I remember when the previews for this game were, were in the magazines and uh, people who had hands-on were absolutely raving about that sequence. And then that was why it was so gutting when um, when the Amiga version didn't feature iMuse. Obviously, you know, it was a, a relatively small price to pay to get the game, but it was a, it was a pity. Um, but yes, it was so uh, it was so ridiculously ambitious that, yeah, they never really used it again after this. <laughs> it was too much, too much to bear. It's thematically um, absolutely on point as well that it kind of nails that sort of folky pirate music that you'd oh, expect. Yeah. Mm, yeah. But then it's also got the uh, sort of the reggae lilt of like what they call island music. So what you'd hear on like Key West and the, mm. like in the Florida Keys. Steel, or, steel uh, pans as well in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah it's got, um, yeah, I think it's, I'd never heard sort of your <laughs> jaunty folk with that sort of reggae mix before. I don't think it's something that often occurs. There's, um, there's a great a, fusion. Dixieland mm. jazz it's in there. There's some more yeah. Mardi Gras stuff. stuff. There's theremin that you get from uh, yes. Hammer Horror Film. In graveyards. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, as, uh, away from the tech of the iMuse. Um, as I say, I just think there's some amazing compositions here. The, the main theme, I just think, is sensational and uh, for me, an absolute all-timer. Um, I must have listened to it dozens of times while I've been replaying the game, um, just leave, leaving it sitting there playing through. And yeah, I, as I say, I think in terms of achievements of the special edition, just having real instruments playing those pieces and interpreting them, I think, in a rather lovely way. It was a... Was a worth the worth the price of entry alone interesting i think the person who oversaw that jesse harlan went on Mm. to do i'm fairly sure this is the same person went on to do yoku's island express which is a soundtrack Uh a lot of people liked and and definitely shares exactly yeah yeah, Yeah. shares a lot of that dna fab so on from the music to the visuals 
Kiss Mammal says, without a doubt, a huge amount of this game's appeal lies in its visuals. The world of Monkey Island 2 is gobsmackingly beautiful and showcases an incredible use of design, animation, colour and perspective to create rich and memorable environments and characters. Even at the time, I remember marvelling that LucasArts artists were able to create a convincing depth to the, to the locations, with some even having the illusion of foreground elements being out of focus and that they were able to achieve all this within the limitations of the VGA palette and resolution. It's testament to the skill of the original art team that the special edition, while looking very polished, arguably lacks a certain vitality and charm found in the original. I will say that, yeah, the I remember seeing the screenshots of the VGA PC version at the time and thinking it just looked absolutely stunning. This was uh, an early use of the LucasArts team actually scanning in the drawings from the art rather than interpreting them. So it gave it a very different look to the previous game. Mm. Uh, again, on the developer commentary, Tim Schafer talks about how further down the line they would have cleaned up the scanned in images a lot. And certainly if you do switch to the retro mm. graphics on a modern screen, those pixels, uh, they're quite blocky and you can see that they're, they're quite large. There's a lot of sort of stray pixels that you could imagine they would have they, they could have tidied up and made things look a bit nicer. Certainly playing it now, I agree with the with the idea that the special edition doesn't quite have the same majesty as the original, but I do think it's quite attractive. And even running it on a on an Xbox One, on, uh, you know, the the 360 gaming backwards compatible mode on a on a large screen, it holds up pretty well for a, for a now a ten year old special edition. Uh, I think it does a decent job, yeah. and and it keeps. It keeps a good sense of the original graphics, but I love the fact that you can switch between them on a whim. I absolutely adore the pixel art. I'm a huge fan of pixel art anyway. Um, I even love how it's something to brag about as a scanned art on the back of the box. Over 6.4 million pixels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it, 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 it's, it's just so wonderful. And there's always a care and a joy that I see in pixel art, like a genuine love for the art that's being created like it it's something that was clearly time consuming it wasn't something that's easy it wasn't something that the tools just do for them um which you know i i understand that there'll be people probably listening to that and thinking that's a little bit unfair of people's skill sets but it's true that i mean the tools help people out these days so i'll always love um true pixel art uh and monkey island 2 um is a, a sublime piece of artwork um, both on the box and within the game. Hmm. I really did not like the new art style that was part of the special editions, and it probably took me a good two to three hours before I stopped noticing the new look, and I would constantly flick back to the old art style. Every new section I went to, I had to go and remember what it looked like. Um, and then it just got to a point where I actually started to quite like it, Mm. Um, I think it's I think it's when I was on the island front and you're at the party um, and all that just looks it's pretty anyway, but it was beautiful in the special edition. And I think by the end of the game, it actually won me over in its art style and I could appreciate both um, the original, the majesty of the original uh, pixel look, as well as the care and attention to detail that had been crafted uh, in the new look. And I think it was clear that they wanted something that looked a little bit more modern and held up to the standards but something that absolutely appreciated the pixel art in the same way that i did mm. um and and i think that once i got over my own sense of i mean let's let's say elitism 
um, <laughs> and and actually came to terms with the fact that it was a different art style to the one that in my head, yes, yeah, I, I remembered, yeah. Um, I, I I actually fell for it. Yeah, I thought it was nice. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to. I oh know we can't. We have got no time warp, but. Uh, if there wasn't the option to go back and look at the older mm. graphics at the same time, I wonder if I'd have found it quite as jarring as I did, or if it would have mm. kind of been like uh, I think it's been said on previous shows about other games, like where it looks like the memory you have of a game. Yes. Yeah, I suppose it is. Given that the the gallery of art is in there, which and you know it's just just sensational, stunning. The original scans, the original art from which they scanned the backgrounds in the original version, it's kind. It is kind of a shame that they didn't adapt those more faithfully into the special edition art. Um, Might be te- but, technical reasons for that, I assume. Possibly so. Because those, uh, those I mean, hand drawn paintings, and if but if you do digital paintings it's a lot easier to kind of move them around and tweak things i i imagine mm, but as i say the the whole point is that the original game is built around those scanned in backdrops and they could have you know potentially done that again but scan them in, in a much higher resolution and touch them up and so maintain the original look of uh, the art that peter chan and, and steve purcell provided um, I mean, everything else ties in like if you, you can segue between the two at literally any time. So even when it's in the middle of a, of a critical animation cycle that actually where, you know, some of the puzzles are, are time based and things like that. So um, I guess the most striking thing when you segue between the two is sometimes the the revised character looks. Mm. Some of them seem very different to the, the original intent, um, even if the. The originals were, you know, kind of crushed into into these very small pixels. They they had this rather, you know, they would often to sell some of the jokes. They would have very broad, uh, kind of oversold physical physical comedy animations. And when you then translate that to the larger, higher resolution characters on the on the modern ones, it looks a bit more kind of a bit bit more bit more wacky, but not necessarily in a good way. But yeah, overall. I mean, yeah, the art at the time and the Amiga translations were, while it lost some colour and resolution, I think they did a they did a pretty nice job as well. I think they're both really good looking. I, I do remember enough about PC games back then that I, I do have some pang of nostalgia for the, the look of it um, and the colours especially. And the fonts as well, like the, the original Monkey Island games. There's something about the fonts um, that really appeal and the different colour fonts as well. But I couldn't play it in the old style. As someone coming to this without those memories of like really playing the whole game, I have to, mm. you know, I, I'll dip in mm-hmm. to see what the art looked like and I'll think, oh, wow, yeah. that was a really good looking game. And then I'll switch back. And then I'll, it also I'll... changes the interface fundamentally back yeah. to the point and click as well, which uh, yeah. when you've gotten used to direct control and shortcuts yes. is, is a bit jarring. And that's the thing about the game. I played it on a PC with a trackball mouse, so essentially one handed. So it's actually really accessible and kind of chill to just sit back and just uh, move things around. And then you only press, you need the keyboard for, I think, the menu and, and to, to toggle the art or whatever. But um, yeah, I thought it, was, it looked really nice. I think personally, I find it looks better than something like Broken Age, you know, which is that modern yeah. digital painting Tim style. Mm. Um, I think they did a, a really nice job. And, and yeah, Leon, you're right that it's the characters where it seems like the most change has happened yeah yeah and, and the the modern characters don't you know they're not like far and away better looking than other games at the time or other games since so they're just funny looking 
cartoon characters really they don't um the you could say that they were well drawn because of the writing rather than the art but they're perfectly fine yeah, art wise it felt to me like I a bit think... like when you get a different um actor coming in to play a part mm. in a soap opera right yeah where it's like <laughs> yeah. almost there like wally wasn't quite what i expected yes. him to look like and that kind of thing yeah yeah for sure i mean when i was looking at it i, I like i said the the Look and the change is something that I really did struggle to get to terms with for a few yeah. hours into the game. But at least they sorted but, his hair out compared to the previous one. Huh? <laughs> it's very important. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, but I think now that I look back at it, I'm glad that they tweaked the look of the characters somewhat from what were quite generic pirate-like characters in terms of pixel art. Um especially with Pirates of the Caribbean, ironically coming full circle and being hugely relevant, um, that it didn't just look like it was a take. Obviously, it wouldn't have been based on source material, but it didn't look like a take on uh, sort of Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean, for example. Um, it, it looked unique, again, uh, in being its own franchise and not lending a look from something yeah. else, which if we look at what Pirates are, it's not the easiest sort of thing you know we've we've got the hook we've got the peg leg we've got the eye patch and some characters do play up to that but they generally have a little bit more about them but in terms of your standard uh you know non-disfigured hero look um it could have been very easy for um guybrush to be uh incredibly bland mm. and instead the new look lent him a little bit more of visual character to differentiate him from other things I quite like the walking animations of everyone in this, especially LeChuck. They've got that limp down. Apparently, then, that was incredibly difficult to do on the having, on the original. And, yeah, it, yeah. Um, but on the special edition as well, they he's got this kind of horrible kind of limp, and they're almost three. I think they must be three D. Those characters in the special edition, they kind of look two D, but when they're walking, there you can see that they're three D models, uh, and they look really good. Look, if if a game came out tomorrow. Uh, a click, point and click game in exactly this art style, looking like the special edition. Um, I'd love it. It'd be, I'd be very happy to play that on a look fantastic on an iPad or or a laptop screen or something. Um, so I think they did a really great job, and that's ten years old now, and it doesn't feel like it at all. Yeah, Kintaris uh, less keen on the revised art even than us. Uh, make sure you play the special edition with the original graphics setting turned on. Though I love Dominic Armato's spoken version of Guybrush. And the reorchestrated score in the special edition, the retouched art style, is frankly a little sickening. <laughs> um, I will say that you don't have to have the silent uh, version of the original game. You can play with the classic graphics and go into the options and switch on the vocal track as well. So if that's uh, if that's the way you want to do it, I'm you not can do what, that. sure what that does to the timing of some of the, I, I toggled that on and off and some of the timing got a bit skewy. Yeah, I suppose it would. Yeah, um, but uh, uh, and with a bit with the game counselor, it's uh, it's a man in the special edition and a woman in the oh, yeah. original. <laughs> so apparently, if you press uh, or F one or whatever the button yeah. is on Xbox, while that's happening, the voice changes. So yeah, ooh, <laughs> nice. Sean S. Thomas says, when I start student talks to designers about how I fell into our industry, I often start with a picture of this game. Until I played Monkey Island 2, all the games I'd played were about high scores or scoring goals, but this game altered all of that. I couldn't die. It made me laugh. The soundtrack added character to the pixelated population. It had style. It transported me somewhere I'd love to visit. And above all, 
It made me think laterally and figure things out for myself. It unlocked something in me I'd never really worked out before, that I liked solving problems, even obtuse ones involving rats and boxes of cheese. Yes, I spent too long at times randomly clicking on every combination of action and item in the vain hope it might yield some result my brain couldn't fathom, but it had a profound effect on me. I sought out alternative comedy. I hoovered up point-and-click games. I started reading choose-your-own-adventure books. I bought Deluxe Paint 3 and tried to draw digitally. Monkey Island 2 was the first time I felt that games could be epic, funny, human stories in their own right and potentially an art form that could one day take on Hollywood. And on a personal level, it was the first game to get me thinking about the career I'd spend most of my adult life doing. Profound and significant mm. then for Sean Thomas. Uh, but he sort of makes uh, mention of those puzzles. Now, we've already touched upon it. Uh, the moon logic of point and click adventures. It's a thing. Some games better than others. Uh, Monkey Island obviously kind of revels in its absurdity. And as such, that almost justifies some of the moon logic because there are so many ludicrous things. I mean, mm. I suppose I suppose one one puzzle that is, a, I would say, is a fairly good illustration. And there are many, many more. But uh, find a banana in a, an envelope that's called a gorilla envelope that's not yours that you open. Take the banana to the metronome in a bar and put the banana on the metronome to freeze a, a piano playing monkey into place which then becomes a, a monkey wrench which you take to a completely different island and use to switch to turn a crank to switch off a waterfall that in a in a nutshell is monkey island 2's puzzles yeah. <laughs> uh, any others any others that stand out as being you think either beyond the pale or particularly ingenious and clever that made you go that is that is a brilliant piece of puzzle writing no, um, I, 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 there's, there's two Toms that played this game. There's enthusiast Tom that loves to learn about the history of games and loves the comedy writing and loves the music and stuff. And then there's grumpy Tom, who's the father of two young children, very tired and impatient and just found almost every puzzle in the game that wasn't kind of immediately obvious or kind of relatively straightforward, just like pulling teeth. Um, and because the hints are just so close to hand in the special edition, yeah, and I have zero Temptation. patience. Maybe I was rushing a bit for the show, so I, I dismissed mm, that. Yeah. A bit. But I just just didn't like it at all. I really don't like this game design wise, uh, and it's stuff like opening the door in Largo's room to find the um, the the slip for his laundry on the back of it. It just just infuriates me because. See, I'd forgotten come, that, but then I thought, so actually, far. that's clever. That's well, I, I think that's a clever puzzle. It might be because my, you, it might be my brain. Uh, it might because I love stuff now like Return of the Obra Dim or, or even Picross, where you can um, cross-reference information. So you you've got you, you need to work up to enough piece of information to solve a puzzle. But here, it's just a brick wall until you you somehow guess the right thing or. Or brute force it, or, or I suppose deduce it, but yeah, it really bothered me. I'm sorry to say, Carl Dan, 
puzzles. Uh, do you remember any? I mean, I remember on the Amiga version before anyone. Had, I think the thing is, I had magazines that had already printed solutions before I got the game because the PC version arrived so you know months before the Amiga version. So I probably did cheat at a couple of points to get myself you know unstuck. Um, if I recall correctly, I'm pretty sure though when I replayed it for the first time on the special edition in 2010 i know that i got the achievement for not using hints but i'm pretty sure i didn't look up any solutions either although i might be kidding myself there maybe i did go online i don't know but i don't think i feel like i didn't um there's there's achievements on the on the special edition for not using for for not using hints at all and another for minimizing your use of hints uh, but as I say, this time through, just because of time and because I've done it legitimately or fairly legitimately before, <laughs> uh, I didn't use the, I, I mean, I did use the hints on this occasion, partly to also to see how the system worked. And it's generally pretty clever because it's quite um, context sensitive, it tends to know where you are. It knows where you are in the game. It knows which items are in which rooms. I think they, they spent a reasonable amount of time on it. Some points it gives you arrows, which directions to go and things like that. Um, so these are all puzzles that I have solved before. And yeah, it was a real mixture for me of some of them going, oh, that is clever. And God darn, I wish I'd thought of that. And sometimes you go, I never would have tried that in a million years. I suppose one of the ones, and I think this gets uh, this gets a mention coming up, is the moving the blowing the horn to move the flags in the spitting contest. That oh, was yeah. That's slightly <laughs> beyond what I would have considered doing. I was thinking, make my spit go further, make my spit go further. Actually, you cheat. Yeah. Yeah, I think we tried that for uh, days, maybe. I don't mean we played it for weeks on end, but sure. that that set yeah. of puzzles uh, really, really did stump us for a while. But there's stuff. Um, there's stuff like having to pull the chef round the house, where oh yeah, you know, in a modern game, they'd mm. at least foreshadow that somehow, or they'd use it again later. But I don't know. I think with a lot of them, if you'd spoke to every single. Uh, NPC and went through every single dialogue choice. I think you do get more clues than possibly uh, we're maybe remembering or giving credit for. Yeah. Because I I think as a team they they'd always give you just enough breadcrumbs to sort of get you through. <laughs> maybe yeah. not quite get you through, but I think they'd like to think that they had uh, sort of set everything up so that you could find it out. And also, there's enough jokes to get you through, if not. So. Yeah, if I if I had more patience and, and a piece of A4 paper and I was exactly like you say, like writing down those extra snippets dotted about, I may have had a much happier time, I think. Yeah, uh, I think the problems always came in these games for me and, and still do. Obviously, the, the genre's made a slight return uh, or variants of it. The problem always came, like, I agree with what you're saying, Dan, about if there's there's enough jokes you know to keep going and and so many of the things that you need to try to have exhausted the possibilities you know every item with every other item in every location there's enough gags written for that that it takes a while for you to run out but when that stuff's run out and you still haven't got a clue that's when these games fall a bit flat and frustrate uh, which can can take a while but i certainly remember having this back in the day and especially I mean, it's much less hassle now, like the game loads almost instantly and there's no transition between screens or rooms and, and islands to speak of. But back on the Amiga, when you're like swapping four discs just to get from one place to another, only to be told that, nah, I don't think I can do that, you know, uh, in text, uh, was, 
yeah, occasionally just too much to bear. It's, maybe and, it's lucky that n- more people didn't play this because the hour, the man hours wasted on puzzles, trying to figure out puzzles in this game, would have been like a drain on the entire economy. Just lots of people <laughs> stuck in front of computers for hours yeah, and but hours. Only twenty five thousand twenty five thousand people bought it, so no problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dave, Dave Grossman says in the commentary, he says that the mm-hmm. hint line for a he says for a hot moment, the hot, the hint line was the company's biggest money maker. Yes, and if he meant all of Lucasfilm at that point, uh, that's saying something. Although we were in the in the middle of the gap between Star Wars films at this point, so it's entirely possible. Uh, yeah, do you remember? I mean, you must have got stuck as a little kid, Carl. Yeah, I mean, it's brutal. Um, very dependent, and it's so strange when you think back because this went all the way back onto probably the late nineties of waiting a month, two, three months for a magazine to come out with a little bit of a guide. So you'd have yeah. the likes of Amiga Power that would print little snippets of, are you stuck on that puzzle? Um, and you'd find a way out. I remember being stuck in the party in the house mm-hmm. um, the first time I played it. Funnily enough, not so much the second time. Um, it, it's hard to remember where I was stuck really clearly, given my age. It definitely wasn't something that was uh, played and completed in a week or two or three. It was over a long period of time, um, over maybe one or two nights a week that I'd play with, play it with my dad. Um, and I think it was probably over the process of a, a few months, um, many puzzles that could be sorted through trial and error. But like you said, Leon, it wasn't always the quickest process, especially no. with all the floppy disks, and it could be quite um, tedious. Yeah. Um and there was a lot of pixel searching um for, for stuff. Oh yeah. Is it my uh, imagination and, and or is the final island much much easier or, or more straightforward with the, the crackers and the parrot and stuff? Uh yeah, it's a it's perhaps a bit more logical, yeah. And maybe maybe they were running out of development time at that point. But yes, it is it is it does seem fairly although I remember the the, the distill thing and then yeah, st- I didn't I'm pretty sure I got stuck on this back in 92, actually, for a little mm-hmm. while at least, stilling the water. I, I think it's um, that the hardest puzzles were often the ones that were um, puzzles that were more than one thing. Yes. So yeah. you'd, you'd solve a part of a puzzle and then that would become another part of another puzzle. But, I mean, from memory, there was nothing that was um, as difficult as, say, uh, the goat on Broken Sword. <laughs> Legendary um, goat. Yeah, so I, I, I wouldn't say that it was that difficult no. um, in in terms of um, being just frustrating and not really seeing what to do. Yeah, the spitting thing with the flag, definitely uh, a similar issue to yourself, Leon. And funnily enough, exactly the same problem when I went back to it, mm-hmm. um, yeah. thinking I must have been able to, did, what, did I water it down? Did I, you yeah. know, is yeah. there a way to spit this further? Um, and it's actually always a, a generally a simpler solution, but I think from memory, the biggest issues were simply going area to area and having to pixel um, pixel search yeah. with the mouse. Which, uh, which, as we say, is considerably less painful on modern tech where the entire game sits in RAM and uh, mm-hmm. uh, there's no loading. But, um, yeah, the actual number of possibilities of combinations meant that it was actually, I, I still find it quite difficult to keep every, you know, every interactable thing on every screen on every island with every item in your inventory, it's hard to keep it all in your head at any one time. Um, yeah. I, you know, I personally find, and I'm sure that's deliberate. There's especially a moment when you first uh, get to Booty Island 
you've instantly got access to a an antique shop and you can buy a ton of stuff in there so you you go from having an inventory of just the items that you need to having a an inventory kind of more than bursting with things that you never need in some cases like the collectible elvis plate mm. uh i don't think that well i never used it i don't know if there's an <laughs> alternative solution to that puzzle isn't isn't the library in, in some ways the library is the worst slash best for that because it's got all mm, these gags the in, library cards yeah, yeah got all the gags but then there are some puzzles where i just oh god i'm trying to think what it is the quotes of the pirates in the crypt now maybe yes. someone somewhere gives a clue that you're looking for pirate quotes in a book. Yeah. But I just never yeah. would have got that in a million it, years. You just reminded me of one of my favourite jokes in the whole game is where you've got the book that's the uh, Majesty of the Sierras. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he reads it, he goes, Sierras? Majesty? I don't think so. <laughs> There's a lot of jokes in that uh, library records uh, thing. They, they comment on that yeah. in the commentary. Like there's, uh, there are... All the draws, not one for every letter of the alphabet, but uh, but you go through the alphabet and each one's got like three rows of j jokes in it, basically. Uh, yeah, you can check out one of three books. At a, you can check out up to three books or up to four books at a time. Four, um, unless you choose Herman Toothrot, in which case you can only take three. Ah. Because of he makes a joke in the first game about the, his overdue library book finds. Um. That's so yeah, right. if you choose that as your fake name for the library card, you can only take out three <laughs> yes. rather than the four. Genius. Which I imagine could stymie you if yeah. for the puzzles if you didn't well, you know the to... reference. You can yeah. Yeah, you'd have to move around, you'd have to keep going returning more, wouldn't you? So yeah. Yes, I think I did do Herman Toothrot as well. But um hmm. Hmm. it's yeah. always worth bearing in mind with puzzles that um they're having to gatekeep to stop it just from being like click to Get, do this get, get, totally, I mean, there has yeah. to be some kind of like a resident evil puzzle yeah, yeah do you want to solve the puzzle yeah, yes but the, <laughs> like the guy in the alley who's holding up the numbers on his hand yeah that is also infuriating like i get it I, I could have got it if i was more patient tom playing this and not incredibly impatient overtired tom. well that's it but, yeah but you know i like like i say i like cross-referenceable where you're given information and you can trust that information. But if they give you dummy info, if they actually put the red herring inside the, the sequence of, of what you think mm. could be a fun and interesting puzzle, and then it's not, and they're just, they're just faking you out, that, again, mm. it just, it just infuriating. In 2019, I, maybe mm -hmm. it was infuriating in 1992. I, I can't speak to that, but there's... It was, but it yeah. was also expected. Yeah, it, was, it was normal to have to think a bit longer and harder to solve things you weren't expecting to breeze through you 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 knew when you bought a point and click game that you might end up stuck on it for weeks on end mm. it, it, you know oh, yeah. it was just that was there weren't hundreds of games i mean there there were lots of video games around but you didn't necessarily you know you wouldn't necessarily have you know the infinite backlog and the yeah. the eight, 18 new releases a week so you would it would be frustrating as i say once you'd combined everything with everything else in every location and you were stuck i i remember it being quite a downer but yeah. uh but it wasn't like you didn't feel you didn't feel it was bad design you just felt frustrated mm. that you couldn't work out the puzzle i think we're, we're spoiled these days aren't we i mean personally speaking return of the obra Dinn, i'm playing uh, baba is you at the moment there's just some incredible puzzle games that have come out since 1992 
and incredible feats of, of intelligence and design and portal and you know and on and on that that these mm. just feel um <laughs> i don't know like they feel of their time pr- I, I would agree yeah, yeah. Um, e- e- even as somebody who enjoys them and has the affection and nostalgia uh i definitely yeah a lot of this puzzle design wouldn't fly it's actually i mean but yeah. but having said that obviously people are making the games in this style now and some people are still very happy to play them in this i mean i don't know how thimbleweed park did i'm pretty sure it did all right and it very much um it reviewed very well um i think the thing that's probably missing the most um is things that we take for granted quality of life fixes quality of life tweaks you know tom's mentioned several times in this podcast already about the hint system that was added in um and that that was obviously a huge advantage but i'm like yourself leon when i was playing back there and we got a point and click game it was an investment yeah so it wasn't about finishing it over a weekend or no. a week that you've got off work. Obviously, not in my case because I wasn't off. Not work. for thirty-eight um, quid. It wasn't. No, you didn't want to just yes. burn through it. So, if it lasted six months, if it lasted a year, it was possible. And video games at that time, there weren't mm. infinite amounts. Obviously, piracy was rife, so it wasn't difficult to get your hands on it. I mean, I had a lot of games. games I was games. twenty years old, but but yeah, it wasn't. It, it's not like it is now, though, no. is it? It's not no. like you wouldn't just sit down and potentially play. A monkey island all day for like four days straight like you can with games now yeah. it was like the whole timing and situation of things was very different there so actually having that that time with them was it, it felt rewarding being able to spend an hour with a game that you've invested in not necessarily it could be frustrating but it wouldn't stop you going back to it the next time now i played predominantly point and click games back then they, that was the genre that i played the most now, ironically, point-and-click games now are the genre that I've got to psych myself up for in advance of playing yeah, them. Yeah. Um, that's my own development, but it's also the fact that I'm very much aware of every other game that I've got to play. Yeah, I can't it's easy go to and walk sit away. there and spend... Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think that, the, and ironic, you know, paradoxically, I'd also say the hint system is is almost too easy, like it's too yeah, frictionless. It's a blessing Just and a curse, to reach for one button means that impatient Tom... It's just so easy for me to to cheat. I guess you could say, oh, you know, even if it was harder, you look it up on your iPhone or whatever. But if there was, oh, I don't know, like, but that's game design, isn't it? If you're having a clever, interesting hint system that, that doles things out and tries to build a lesser challenge in a way, and you know, um, do a, a kind of a, a staircase approach to difficulty that's you know you need a really good designer to kind of think yeah it definitely that. has the the capacity to completely undermine the experience in the same way you know as people were uh bemoaning the idea of a of, of accessibility in a game like Sekiro um it depends how you use it I think there is a danger as well with with the hint system being pretty much like it, it starts off relatively oblique and if you keep hammering it eventually it pretty much tells you where to go and what to do um but I also think it it activates based on my recent playthrough it activates your your lazy brain your lazy itis mm. so you actually just stop engaging with puzzles and you because you know you can solve them but there's, so there's, I think... there's still some frustration though because even though it tells you even if you get to the last hint and it says you know remember the lyrics to the Dembone song to to open the doors uh you know you have to open the sequence of four four doors to to match the verses I, I didn't know you had to walk through the doors. I thought you just had to open the door, open another door, open another door, and then walk oh, through right. the last door. So the most frustrating part about that I wouldn't have thought that, that was is, obvious, Tom, to be honest. <laughs> but it was, but that's, it, that's what I'm saying is, is 
the design overall, the 1992-ness of the design kind of um, doesn't sit well with Impatient Tom. It just, it just doesn't, unfortunately. Mm. There's one important quality of life feature, though, that in, even 1992 was um, quite a, a different thing, that you couldn't die from, click, from doing the wrong thing in the wrong puzzle. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think well, that was quite a big. Well, yeah, not in the, but not in the same way that. that you could in like the earlier Sierra games or yes. or some others, where yeah. you could suddenly have a game over just through getting a puzzle wrong or something yes. like that. So um, that had at least been bred out by yeah. by this point. That was it. Was a huge quality. I mean, it literally it was a, like a selling point on the box or in the <laughs> manual, wasn't it? It was like you can't die in these. Uh, yeah, we should say there is one as with the the ten minute holding your breath puzzle in in the first game where you can die and have to reload. Uh, there is one place in which you can die in this game, but you sort of can't. So for those who don't know, this game has a framing device, the the likes of which we'd see again in Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, a few years, another decade and so on later, um, where the game starts in media res with you hanging there, talking to Elaine and re- regaling her with the events of the last however many days uh, and so on. Of course, so because he's telling you the story, and you're you're seeing the whole thing in flashback. You can't die because that would be a mm. contradiction. Um, so in fact, uh, if you do get if you do wait long enough and get lowered into the acid, uh, you get you go back to the framing scene, and Elaine says, "Don't be stupid. You obviously didn't get killed in a vat of acid because you're here talking to me now." And so it go returns to the scene. Um, I don't know what happens if you repeatedly fail or whether it doesn't let you fail more than once. Um, on that, on that, I'm not sure. So yes, you go through the four chapters. We've already started talking about uh, what happens towards the end. Let's hear from the reviewist forum uh, poster. The reviewist says Monkey Island 2 was the very first point and click game I ever played. I didn't have a PC back in the halcyon days of 1991, but my friend did. And over one very intense weekend, see it could be done, we played our way from start to almost the end, getting stuck finally when Guybrush fell down the hole and we couldn't find the light switch. Uh, with school the next day, I had to lumber home with the game unfinished and didn't find out how the story ended for another couple of weeks. It's a strange result of this that while I love that game and recently replayed the Xbox version, I never quite fell in love with the rest of the genre as such, and I only played the original game last year for the first time, also on Xbox. That said, the quirky art, the silly humour, and even the Star Wars and Indie Jones references really made this game stand tall in my mind, and to date, I've never played a point and click game that was as much fun and that managed to straddle the line between tough puzzles and unfair leaps of logic inherent to the genre better. A gem. So we have to talk about it. The ending. The notorious famous ending. Possibly one of the most loved and hated endings, depending on who you ask. In some cases, maybe a bit of both. Let's hear from Mechner before we give our own thoughts on it. Mechner from the forum says, The end of Monkey Island 2 is perhaps its defining feature. It definitely is one of the things Ron Gilbert will be remembered for, be it better or worse. Sadly, he may never get the chance to reveal his true intentions for the ending because Disney now owns the IP and they probably don't even know or care what Monkey Island is. Ron is also a rather stubborn man. He has said he would not work on the true sequel unless he had complete control, thus a stalemate. Monkey Island, according to Ron, was always planned as a trilogy. His Monkey Island 3, The Secret or Your Money Back, or as it is affectionately known by fans, Monkey Island 3A never came to fruition, as he unceremoniously left LucasArts before making it. Instead, his IP was left in the hands of others trying to pick up the pieces. 
Whilst he once came close to buying back the rights before corporate giants Disney was sold Lucasfilm, it never happened due to management changes and business mumbo-jumbo. While those left at LucasArts continued and in my opinion achieved a great continuation of the series with Curse, I was always left with a niggling feeling that it hadn't come from the auteur himself, or rather it could be treated as an alternative reality sequel. But where did Monkey Island 2 leave us? At a carnival, as a young boy, unsure of the reality of his current situation. I believe to this day I have never been so deeply affected by an ending of a narrative in any medium, except maybe Twin Peaks Season 2. I am of the opinion that Monkey Island 2 has the best ending of anything ever. <laughs> it does not hold your hand and tell you well done. It does not give you a happy ending where the hero wins and gets the girl. It does not even give you a sad ending where the hero loses. It gives you an ending that you either hate or love. It pulls the carpet right from under your feet and it achieves what all great art achieves. It keeps you thinking about it long after the floppy disk has left your drive. It keeps you talking about it long after you went outside to play with your friends. It keeps itself alive through discussion, through endless theorising, through meticulous dissection of every line uttered, through every insignificant object examined and through the many disagreements on what it all means. It is anything but boring. That is why I think it's the best ending. It gives you just enough to satisfy you, but it also gives you not enough to keep you guessing and wondering. I remember on first completing the game as a kid, I was confused. I didn't think it was the end. I didn't want it to be the end. I thought maybe if I wait long enough, the game will continue. But it never did, and I never forgot it. Was it all in Guybrush's head? Is he really just a young boy with an overactive imagination? Is it just a clever curse conjured by the evil LeChuck? What is the secret of Monkey Island? It is, the question I have is, was it not just Ron Gilbert messing with everybody for a laugh? Is it, you well, know, possibly. Do we need an hour-long YouTube essay on it, or is it, I don't know. Oh, they'll already be there. It was. Um, uh, I think. I mean, one, I know that. Th that is that is uh, incredibly. Um, you know that that's a great illustration of the different approaches uh, which with which we've we've come to this game. As as Mechner says, there it was the one of the most significant things he's ever experienced. And I have to say, as a twenty-year-old, when I played it, I don't think I, I I would struggle to think of endings of other things that have affected me more affected me more deeply than the end of Monkey Island Two. I, I filed it away with my the end of Blake 7 and the end of Monkey Island 2 <laughs> uh, things as endings which genuinely, like, rocked me. Like, I, it's, you got to, in terms of, I'm not saying it has to work for everyone, but in terms of why it affects some people, you have to understand that I played Monkey Island 1 when I was, like, 17, 18, absolutely adored it, just fell in love with the world and the characters. Then... Got hugely excited for Monkey Island 2, struggled through with it, playing it on the Amiga, and eventually got to the end. Had no idea this was coming. And then to see it was actually, it was all, you know, a, a, a kid's imagination or potentially. Luckily, there's also that bit where you still see Elaine hanging down the hole, suggesting that something else is going on. Um, it was genuinely trauma traumatic. <laughs> uh, and I had hugely mixed feelings about it. Um, I think if I played it for the first time now, I would think nothing of it whatsoever. Um, but at the time and in context, it was it was affecting. Dan, do you remember anything uh, regarding this? Like, did it did it give you any kind of either feeling of satisfaction or disappointment? Well, there was a slight kicking yourself element. The whole like 
I mean, even by that point, it was cliche to have a. Uh, oh, it was all just a dream kind of ending. Like Sparky's magic piano ends yeah. with that. Um, mm. trying, there's probably plenty of others that that do over time, but at the same time, um, yeah, I I liked that it annoyed me. Do you know, what I, mean? I liked the trick that had been pulled, and then I think although there's not quite enough nods all through the game, there are maybe uh, almost enough to to make you think when you replay it. Oh, hang on. Yeah. Like with the near grog and uh, mm-hmm. just little nods to him being younger than maybe we we think. Yeah. I don't know. It's it doesn't. I don't think it's as. Uh, it could have been a lot better, but I don't think it's the ending itself that's the problem. It's just that it could have maybe played out a little longer. But then you're going to lose the sort of sharpness of it as well. So, mm. um, Did- yeah, it didn't annoy me as such. I. Uh, I just thought it was a bit clever, clever, but I'm, I'm a fan of that kind of thing anyway. So. <laughs> if you take that framing, that brilliant framing device of them hanging off the ropes and starting the story, like you said, Leon, and I, I do love that. And then you take that to the end, the bit just before the very final kind of boss fight, as it were, and you just sort of think of the game as just that and then chop off the ending. And then you've got, you imagine Ron Gilbert sitting there thinking, how can I really, how can I end this game? Oh, I don't know. Let's muck with people. Let's have a World War Two bunker, and then he's your brother, and we do the Darth Vader thing, and just that's my uh, really shallow impression of it. From 20- I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that's exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah. If I came to it now, age nearly forty-seven in 2019, and played it for the first time, I'm sure I would think exactly the same. But yeah, within context, Carl, you were the youngest of us when you played this. Were you upset or 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 overjoyed, or you know, was it was it a gleeful reveal or was it like, oh no, I didn't want it to be, I didn't want it to be this. <laughs> I think it, it was just a case of being a bit nonplussed, really. Okay. It was a bit, okay, that's the end of the game. That was, you know, just, just crack on in my own little world of naivety and thought, well, mm. if that's how it wants to end, that's fine. Obviously, I'm a little bit more bitter and jaded as an adult. I've still never, still never forgiven Mass Effect 3. <laughs> yeah creepy brother chucky uh as they walk off as little kids mum and dad who you've you you think you've seen die in the uh, uh in the game or you found out they are dead and you've seen their bones in the game as as you understood it uh mum and dad are there you're at the theme park you get dra- you know they're, they're just there to pick you up you're with your creepy brother chucky who uh who was under the chuck costume all the time but of course yeah the the kicker is as you're walking away he looks directly out at the out of the screen at you and kind of you know voodoo magic electric kind of buzzes around his head kind of thing so so there is still that 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 idea that there is more to it than just it was just all in his imagination um yeah I, I, it, it, as an ending i don't hate it even though it leaves a lot unanswered and it's not that i need answers in endings a good ending can be completely open um i just really hate bad endings um obviously <laughs> so when i went back to it the second time part of me thought it's really cool if they are kids like i said the humor is actually quite childish so it would make sense in that regard if, if he was a child and i think that that is really kind of cool the second part is that there's a secret of monkey island that we don't know what that secret is the third part is that voodoo is definitely a huge part of that franchise so there's absolute absolutely the chance that there's the curse um that's essentially making him see an alternate reality and then the other one mm. i thought well if there were d- if um the same team were to be responsible for the third game yeah 
would it just be a whole J.R. Ewing thing of he just wakes up back in the actual world the next day kind of thing, and that's a crazy kind of dream. Um, and a, I mean, it's obviously the J.R. Ewing thing was culturally relevant, albeit 10 years prior to the release of the game. It's still... Bobby, you know, Bobby the, Ewing, by the way, but yeah, same difference. Sorry, yeah, Bobby Ewing. So <laughs> so the whole, the whole Dallas thing is, you know, as a show is older than me, but I'm still aware of that yeah, yeah, point. Yeah, for sure. So um, that absolutely could be it. So there's many unanswered questions, but I kind of like each and every reality that it could be. Um, I would have liked a third game to have essentially wrapped that up, yes. perhaps. But yeah. do, do you know what? Uh, as so, an ending, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so obviously you know, two great tenets of the humour throughout Monkey Island are anachronisms, i.e. you know, things and references in the world that shouldn't be there in this uh, old-timey piratey setting and also uh, surreality, you know, sur- surreal surrealism in the humour. So in that sense, there's, yeah, there's nothing to say that the ending is, you know, definitively what it looks like. Uh, and yeah, as I say, it alludes, it alludes to that anyway. If uh, it had ended where Tom says, where um, mm. Ray Lane comes in and it ends where it starts, mm. I wonder if we'd be... Uh, talking about it as a masterful ending right mm. now in a different way um mm. it's almost like self-sabotage in a funny way like uh, kind of like tom said that they got to that point and like well that is a great ending but it's not a funny ending it's not um it's not a monkey island ending it's a yeah. it's a sort of lucas ending um mm. so let's just sort of yeah stuff things up for the last it's almost like a maybe treat it as a bonus scene more than an ending might be for people who don't like it, that might be an easier way to <laughs> sort of pass your way yeah, through. Yeah, I did. I didn't think that they would end it before because you do kind of want a you know a climactic showdown with the LeChuck. I mean, taking a step back, I mean, it's funny from the idea of Ron Gilbert being like, <laughs> whatever, let's just muck with people, and and I'm sure now he groans slightly at the thought of people pulling apart ten different possible explanations when there is none in his mind. He just thought it was funny. But it's not very piratey ending. You know, it's in this kind of underground bunker that's only a few rooms wide with this really frustrating ending puzzle sequence. Um, uh, that, that, that idea of it isn't very satisfying, but I do love the kind of, it was all a dream, but was it, you know, and then thinking about just how kind of silly the whole idea of ending a, a pirate point and click click game in that way yeah so the as we as we know uh gilbert left the company and uh 1997 five years later the sequel came along we're not covering that in this show we may very well cover it in the future it's available on goodoldgames.com so if you want to find out what uh arguably canonically but arguably non-canonically happened next uh you can find out by playing that game uh it was pretty much the end of the game was pretty much just written off so you know so they could carry on with the piratical adventures of Guybrush Threetwood so I mean I'm I I expect it's probably not a million miles away from what Gilbert would have done but uh but yes as we know he has said we will never know unless uh he ever gets the rights back and gets to do it um other obviously there's other Monkey Island stuff there's the Telltale stuff uh for us to look at in the future and uh and God bless us. Uh, there's also Escape from Monkey Island, if we get that far. Um, I don't <laughs> want to play that one ever again, but I sort of do because it will be interesting to talk about. Uh, we got a really nice, uh, relatively late piece of correspondence, but it came in time from Simon Sloth on the forum, who says, 
Monkey Island 2 has a rather unique place in my gaming history. After all, this was the first and only game I ever swapped with a complete stranger via a magazine advert. I traded a scrolling shooter, the name of which escapes me, for Monkey Island 2 on the Amiga. I thought I was getting a bargain, a big box 12 floppy disk fully fledged classic which I had fawned over in exchange for a measly single disk shooter without a box. I instantly fell in love but agonisingly could never finish that version. As it turned out, one of the discs was a dud. These were the days when my parents would buy me two games a year, one for my birthday and one at Christmas. They were extremely anti-piracy even though I owned the game and they thought my ill-advised swap with a complete stranger was a learning experience, so didn't do the kind thing and help me rectify my mistake. It actually took me a considerable amount of time to learn about the duff disc as I hadn't mastered the art of trying everything with everything else. I resorted to multi-part magazine walkthroughs spread over several months and actually wrote into a magazine. Unsurprisingly, this was for the solution to the less than intuitive spitting contest, which to this day I still struggle to comprehend and rely on a step-by-step -step guide. I used to lie in bed at night and think about logical solutions to my latest quandaries. I now know this was a complete waste of time as if LucasArts games have taught me anything, it's that Occam's razor does not apply. The simplest explanation is almost never the right one. Never has a game permeated my consciousness so utterly and completely as this game. Infinitely quotable, ever replayable, bought on every console I own that it's available on. My four-year-old son is told the adventures of LeChuck and Guybrush as bedtime stories. My 11-month-old daughter's flailing arms when she's excited remind me of Stan and make me chuckle every time. My playground quotes were Guybrush quips when everyone else was referencing Star Wars. I have a deeply personal love for this game, but as I write this I wonder if that disc hadn't been a dud, whether I'd be writing these very words. As it stands, Guybrush's adventures are permanently etched in my brain until its expiration date. Ah, oh, see, I love it a lot more now because you broke out the uh, young children. Just angle. mention children <laughs> and there you go. Yeah, I mean, they don't care. They'd probably think the puzzles and the ending were stupid too. And they might be right. <laughs> we also have some three-word reviews. Follow us on Twitter at Rince. Firebutton Games says, Voodoo Pirate Shenanigans. Ashton Herman, such incredible music. Skosh Malosh says, definitely not rubber. Bearfish Pie says, Marley and me. Applause for that one, I like that. Mm. Jim Larson, I'm your brother. The Baboon Baron, Fat Booty Scab. Nice. And Gustav Dahl says, still fun today. Thank you, everybody. So let us summarise in terms of availability. Uh, this game is still yeah, quite easy to get hold of and play on, well, 360, Xbox One, and PC. Is it a PC, PS3 version? PS3, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, not PS4 at this point, sadly. But anyway, would we recommend it? Did we enjoy it? Feelings and thoughts, whatever they are. Thomas? So I, uh, uh, enthusiast Thomas, thinks that this is a you know seminal work, um, one of the funniest games I've ever played. Um, and I love that dream team, you know, uh, Tim, Tim Schaefer and Dave Grossman and the other one, uh, I think, Ron Gilbert. no, I know I was deliberately, it doesn't matter. I just, I think they were doing really good work in some ways, like the art, the, the, the jokes and the sentiment behind the jokes, if you like. So it's a kind of a 
fun, safe, silly game. You know, there's nothing hugely dark in it. Um, and I think that's why it's quite accessible in that sense. And there's a really, you know, with a really good special edition out, uh, it, the fact that it's not an iPad anymore is a bit of a crime. I think it, it really actually sits quite well on that mm-hmm. as a sort of sit back and play with your your partner or a friend. It's a really nice experience. So I did have to go through hoops to to, to play it on a PC laptop and, and, and blah, blah, blah. But um, I kind of half enjoyed my time with it in that sense, aesthetically and, and laughing out loud. And then I, I really don't like the, the puzzles. I don't like the construction of them, the logic of them or illogic of them. And um, Impatient Tom had a really bad time with this in, in 2019 and kind of really wishes that there was some way to sand off the edges without uh, the almost frictionless hint system. So I'm kind of asking for my cake and eat it there. I, I just think, you know, it's just, it's a 1992 game. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to somebody in 2019 unless they knew that they had the patience to go through it that they were the type of person who might want to write down scraps of useful, you know, clues and things on a, on a piece of A4 um, and had the willpower not to just lean on the hint system. But but you've kind of got to know what kind of puzzle gamer you are, I think, for me to, to uh, recommend this to you. If you're interested in the history of games and you just want to see the humour or whatever, you could watch a YouTube video, but you could also breeze through it using the the, the hints and... And really enjoy it. I don't have strong feelings about it. I don't have nostalgic feelings about it. I, I might struggle to remember much of it in a couple of months' time. Um, but uh, I am glad to have revisited it anyway. Thank you, Thomas. Carl, how about you? I definitely sit more positively in terms of recommending it than Thomas does. Um I would definitely recommend playing the first game prior to the second game. It's not necessarily yeah, essential, but I do think you get a better idea for the story arcs of the of the characters in there um, that just adds a little bit of the humour. And especially, um, as Dan mentioned earlier, when you get like the little meta jokes of being able to book three books out instead of four, which makes so much more sense when you've played the first game. Um, so the genre itself isn't necessarily always the most friendly genre for people to play. Um, and it's definitely a time investment to want to go and play a point-and-click game. So it's not something that I would say to someone to just try because, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes is not actually going to sell an experience. You have to really go and try and invest yourself into the genre if you want to go and enjoy it. But if you do, what you will get out of it is one of the funniest times I've ever experienced going through a game. And... The fact that I could go through a game 15 years later and still laugh out loud, and it is rare for me to laugh out loud at a game. Um, The fact that I could actually go through it and laugh out loud is so rare. Um, And even even just reading lines or watching someone else's YouTube playthrough or um, just, like, reading a script and talking about stories with people, I still smile at so many of the many many moments that are in monkey island too um that are generally quite rare now i'm obviously a huge fan of that that late 80s early 90s point and click style that we got you know we did have sam and max we did have day of the tentacle we had this we had full throttle 
Um, and they're all quite joyful in their own ways, but Monkey Island 2 is just um, some of the funniest writing that I've ever experienced going through a game. And if it makes me laugh at 8 and it makes me laugh at 30 and it still makes me laugh at 35, then I'm, I have to recommend that people uh, try and experience that for themselves because um, it's just a game that makes me smile all the time thinking about it. And it's even got the catchiest music. So, um, yeah, it, it's had, I, I find very little to say negatively about a game that has given me so many good memories throughout the years. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah, I think my feelings on Monkey Island 2 have never been quite as purely uh, affectionate as they were for the original. There's something about the original which uh, just utterly beguiled me and charmed me so much. I do still really like the second game, but I think maybe a combination of wrestling with the Amiga version with its 11 floppy disks and terrible load times and performance, plus that ending which really did genuinely shake me, um, means that I've never felt quite as warmly disposed. But that said, um, while I wouldn't necessarily say it's a game that has me sort of rolling on the floor laughing it's more like a constant gen general sort of you know smirk on my face of be having my ribs lightly tickled um combine that with these uh with these really sweet sweetly put together characters the absolutely sensational uh art whichever version you play to an extent um but it would be nice if there was a way of just playing with the original backdrops just really tidied up rather than the sort of the the sort of coverall solution they went for for the HD version that said the special edition i think as special editions go is very nice and it's especially great to hear to have heard them take that amazing original score and actually uh, for me improve upon it by using real instruments bringing it to life so uh yeah i think it's uh, an it's an essential text in in uh, in gaming history and all that um most of the most lucas lucas film games and lucas arts titles were to be honest during the, the sort of the period from 1984 up to probably a, a decade after that this is one of those and uh would be uh worth a place in any collection let's finish with our guest dan um it's so difficult to to quite know i know like nostalgia gets in the way but this was my uh it was the first VGA PC game I'd seen. Yeah. Uh, the first point and click game. Sorry, Dracula Undead, you don't count. Um, <laughs> there were so many firsts to it that um, it's difficult to sort of extract that. But the whole thing is so memorable. Um, some could say that it's because it's such a linear game. But it's almost like I can play it in my head. And the music and the backgrounds and the the art are kind of all there. If I sort of close my eyes, I could pretty much play it from start to finish um and there's very few games that i think i could say that about it's um it reminds me of uh say there's certain comedies that i can go back and watch even though i know the jokes and there's others that i wouldn't ever want to see again this is one where uh i i like the um the warming familiar familiarity of it you know it's a it's a bit of a comfort blanket of a game for me. Now, I don't know if that would translate to someone nowadays, but as Sean Thomas says, it's a of a certain point of time. It's a masterclass for anyone who is studying design. Um, maybe for impatient Tom, it would be how not to design puzzles. Maybe for mm. others, it would be, um, I don't know, just how to... It's a, it's a synergy of the... I think 
it just all comes together as this sort of one coherent project, which maybe other point-and-click games have done that before, especially LucasArts games. But having never seen one before that, um, I just find it so striking that it is such a uh, a singular whole. And um, I think if you haven't played it, yeah, I don't know, do it if you can. It's uh, If you can stomach the the puzzles and the... Uh, the brick walls that you may hit along the way. Um, enjoy the jokes. Look up a walkthrough if you need to, uh, but but enjoy it for what it is. Nice. Thank you. So it remains for me, Leon, to thank Carl, Thomas and Dan, as well as our correspondents, Editor Jay, and to all of you for listening. Dan, have you got anything you want to publicise at this point, this juncture? Oh, no. Uh, well, not really, other than look out for a podcast later this year. Oh, hey, um. I'm going to reveal the name. Uh, so Ooh. look out for the Obscurator podcast. It might be Obscurator or The Obscurator. But um, yeah, keep your eyes open later in the year and that should be popping up on your feeds and all that kind of thing. Ooh, excellent. Good to hear you back in the world of podcasting. Yeah. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast that we make, please do remember to subscribe, rate, review, wherever you get your shows from, if it's Apple or elsewhere. Don't forget our other podcasts. And best of all, if you want to really help us keep on doing what we do, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Rince. Just a dollar a month, less than a quid. Uh, you can get every Kane and Rince podcast one week earlier and often extended beyond the two hours and an exclusive monthly podcast to boot. Next time in issue 372, prepare to board the Robo Freighter and eliminate all rogue robots in our Paradroid podcast. Connected to the hip bone. The hip bone connected to the hip bone. The hip bone connected to the hip bone.